Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the think tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. Today, my guest is Vernon Everett, the relatively new Transport Commissioner at the Transport for Greater Manchester. And before that, he was a member of the senior leadership team at Transport for London for a long time, more than 14 <laughs> years, I think, uh, Vernon. It means you've got lots of experience rather than the, that you're old. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. You're very kind. Well, welcome, uh, welcome to to this episode. Um, Thank you. As I say, you're at you're at Greater Manchester now, and we'll come on to that um, shortly. But I want to take you back to your time at London and get your experiences and insights and lessons. You know, since what what you took away from London and how maybe that will shape what you think Greater Manchester needs to do. Yeah. And I suppose the the first place to to start really is just to get your reflections on the ongoing uh kind of conversations that have been happening between the mayor and transport for london and the government about trying to resolve some of the funding issues that have become apparent over the last few years because of uh core just just give us a sense as to you know where you think we are and what that might mean well thanks andrew and thanks for inviting me uh, on today well let's hope that we're near a resolution to it because it's been dragging on for ages I know that everyone's been working really, really hard to get to a a sensible conclusion on the long-term funding picture for Transport for London, which is fair both to Transport for London and and to to taxpayers. Uh, And and looking at the trajectory, I know there's a board meeting today, hopefully we'll get some good news soon because, of course, it is in everybody's interests uh, to sort out the long-term things. It, you cannot run an organisation of the size of TFL, you know, hand-to-mouth. You need to be able to plan effectively. You need to be able to, you know, get the supply chain to be working with you in the most efficient way to deliver things at the cheapest price uh, and all of that stuff. So let, let's hope let's hope we're getting there because the last thing I think any of us need in London or anywhere else, actually, in the UK is for there to be material cuts to services just at the point that we're seeking to rebuild them yeah well quite and it's interesting we'll come on to this since some of the some of the conversations are in part driven by some of the quite significant changes we've seen over the last two to three years in the way that the transport systems not only in london but but elsewhere are you know are being used which in in and of itself i think raises biggest questions about the uk transport system and and how it works and how it's funded yes i i agree with that uh, I think the big question emerging out of all of these short-term deals and all of the emergency funding that government has put in, you know, to keep to keep transport moving, is what what then does that tell us about the funding model for public transport and active travel, and how does that how does that help us deliver the objectives I think that we've all, all got for greater sustainability, decarbonisation, and to accommodate what is still growing, you know, a whole bunch of growing populations. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, you know, hopefully we can clear this bit down and provide a little bit of breathing space to be able to work out what that longer term funding model actually looks like. Great. Well, let's let's park that and let, let's let's get into that in a sense of, of uh, looking uh, backwards a, a little bit. Um, you know, you, you were you know, in TFL as in a senior position. Just give us a sense as to how. The transport system of London was evolving. You know, a lot of has been discussed about what's happened 
during COVID, obviously, and how all of that is playing out. But just give us a sense as to how you saw the transport system evolving over the, you know, over the decade beforehand, what some of the trends were, how people were accessing it, when they were doing that, and what that meant then for the way that the transport system had to resolve and, and um, respond. Yeah, so I suppose if we want to clock back just even a little bit earlier than that, Andrew, if you, if you recall that Transport for London was created in the year 2000, uh, and over, over that period, there has been a remarkable mode shift away from the private vehicle and onto public transport and active travel facilities. A very significant, you know, over 10% modal, modal shift. Uh, and uh, that, that had begun to moderate during, uh, as, we, as we ran through and, and ran up to the pre-COVID period. And on, on buses, that you recall that uh, there was an enormous amount of investment in London's bus network, which really stimulated uh, passenger demand. And we saw that moderate a bit pre-COVID. That was down about 2% per annum since 2014. The tube, um, as we approached COVID, was growing at around 1% to 2% per annum, where the, the long-term average over that period was about 4%. So we, we had seen that. And I don't think any of us have really got a, a definitive handle on, on why all that was, but I think some of the most influential factors would have been uh, Brexit. Mm. I think that was a big factor. Yeah. Um, the, it's quite hard to measure what the floating population is of, of any city, but it certainly felt like Brexit uh, led to a number of you know, Europeans going home, going back to their own countries, and so on, which would have affected ridership, particularly on buses uh, and the tube. Incomes were already being squeezed pre-COVID, actually. So, you know, and particularly for the for for younger uh, Londoners. So there might have been uh, something around that. And flexible working isn't new. I think what we've seen uh, through COVID is is an acceleration of, of trends that we were already observing. Um, we, we were observing buoyant leisure traffic, but a moderation in commuting uh, traffic. But most people are carried for purposes other than work. Yes. It's to do other stuff, um, to go to hospital, to go to school, to do the stuff you need to do in your, in your, you know, in your, in your ordinary life. So, you know, all of those things were coming together, I think, to moderate the pace. And we had seen an uplift in cycling. There's been a huge amount of investment in London in segregated cycling facilities and everything across all of the boroughs. And that was bearing fruit uh, too. So that was the sort of picture as we, as we entered uh, COVID, which, which then, of course, changed everything in terms yeah. of ridership. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to the, just your sense of the, the COVID in, impact. Just for, interesting what you were saying there. How do you think about, was the model during that sort of, that earlier period, was it um, provision of new services, whether it's you know more buses or more routes or more cycling infrastructure in response to existing demand, or were you very clear that you wanted to stimulate extra demand and you you felt confident that better yeah. supply, however you define that, would actually in it in and of itself drive up demand? Because I think that again, that's a big issue for lots of our other places where demand is relatively weak or not as strong as we would want it but we we feel encouraged that better supply will induce more more better better responses where was the thinking in tfl at the time it was to stimulate demand uh, and and it 
it was it was to tackle the the challenge of of sustainability of, of of the greater london area if you if you wind the clock back to look at some of the big policy decisions that the first mayor took uh, with the introduction of the congestion charge in 2003 uh, that was very uh, that was a huge decision and sent a very big message about what what sort of what sort of city it was and of course um, L London already benefited from a pretty good public transport network as well. And the view was that f further investment in that, including building up the bus network in a way which hadn't been done before. The bus network had been in decline for decades until the early, well, the late 1990s, early 2000s, really. Um, so um, that, that investment enabled people to exercise choices. Now, in some area, in some parts of the country, like Greater Manchester, actually, 60% of the journeys in Greater Manchester are by, are by car, by road. Mm -hmm. And you can understand why, because it's a different, it's the same geographic footprint, actually, as London, but with far fewer people. Yeah. Um, you know, London's got nine and a half million inhabitants, Greater Manchester just over, uh, over three million. And many of those areas are rural. You can't get around without your car. But, you know, to your point, uh, that 60% mode share, 40% active travel, public transport share, we would like to make that 50-50. Right. Uh, and in order to make that 50-50, we do need to invest in a more joined up, integrated public transport network uh, and active travel network. They, are, they go together. And um, that's what, you know, that's what all of the work currently in Greater Manchester that I'm sure we'll come on to in a minute yeah, yeah. Is, is directed towards. Yeah. And I think that, that you know, there's, there's no way I, uh, that we're going to meet our decarbonisation targets um, and, you know, just make the livability of cities better uh, and, unless we, we maintain world-class public transport systems. And give people a genuine alternative to the car. It's not about being anti-car. It's about it's about giving people a, a a viable, affordable alternative. And I'm sure we'll come on to affordability in a minute as well. Yeah. To to make those sorts of journeys. And it's being confident, I think, about and being clear-headed about that it's not just that you want to respond to the situation as you currently find it you yeah, want yeah. to evolve and change the situation you know for the for the reasons that you've just you've just outlined and i think again that's a real important kind of issue in the current debate because i'm a bit worried that the current debate is basically well look you know numbers are down so we just have to accept it and then we have to provide services that respond to the current you know lower numbers and i think that's just a self-defeating agenda but i don't know what i don't know what you think about that I, I think this is a really important point. It is hardly surprising that people do focus on pre-COVID, post-COVID, particularly you know, on ridership numbers and revenue. But I think there's a danger, as you say, in focusing on that because it ignores the fact that regions are growing. We've just had the census um, data and just take the Greater Manchester area as an example, that grew by 7% over the census period and is forecast to continue to do so. 165,000 new homes are being built. Uh, there's loads of jobs being created. You walk around Greater Manchester, there are cranes everywhere. Mm. And, and a third of the residents of Greater Manchester do not own a car. And, and they need to be moved around because unless we can move them around, they won't have access to jobs, they won't have access to education, they won't have access to all of those things that transport enables 
I think one of the things people often forget, Andrew, is that transport's an enabler. And, and much of what it does doesn't fall to the balance sheet of the transport authority that happens to be running the services. It falls in all sorts of other areas across the city in terms of job creation, housing, education, and, and life opportunities for people. So I think you're right. I think it's really important that we just take a look um, at, at what transport do we need to provide in order to make that growth sustainable growth and to ensure from a social perspective that everybody has an opportunity to participate um, in, in all of that. I, I think no one can argue that the world of work has, has changed and that people's travel habits have changed, but I don't think we've seen all of this washed through yet. And we, we're already back at, well, if you look at the tube, the tube's 75, about 75% of pre-pandemic now. Yeah. It's been growing steadily and particularly for leisure traffic, you know, weekends, it's rammed. Um, we're seeing similar sorts of things in Greater Manchester. The buses are back, are back to sort of 80, 85%. And we're seeing this across the country. It's not just London and Greater Manchester. So very important, I think, not to get completely hung up on pre-post-COVID numbers. Let's look at the economic and social development and the levelling up agenda, you know, what it, whatever it ends up being called in a new government you know, in a, in a new government that we'll have in a in a just a few days' time, there is still a need to ensure that people across the country can participate in all of this in the way that people in London can through yeah. their public transport network. You know, the levelling up agenda has not gone away, uh, and um, and we need to work hard, you know, to enable people to be able to move around in a in a way which is affordable which has clean vehicles helping towards the decarbonisation agenda um, and so on. Yeah. In your sort of time at TFL, you know, you looked at these sort of trends and patterns as they were evolving and, and changing. And it was there, were there certain sort of things that were happening that was surprising to you in a sense that, you know, you had an idea about you wanted to achieve X or you wanted to do to do Y and you were obviously providing support into different areas. But, you know, when you now take a step back, were you, were you slightly surprised by, you know, the, the quite rapid expansion of cycling and such much more than you maybe anticipated? Or, you know, I mean, how, do you, how do you think back? What was the bit that was, you know? I think the magic ingredient, which only struck me fully, uh, having worked there for a long time, was the foresight of the people uh, that, that drafted the GLA Act and, and who explicitly put together an economic plan or made it the mayor's responsibility to have an economic plan for the region, a spatial plan for the region, and then a transport plan that connected it all up. And I think that was, it was incredible foresight um, because it's, it's that lockup of all of those things that then make you think, you know, in a much broader way in an outcome based way. So it wasn't so much a surprise um, in, in terms of what happened, but it, it, it was a realisation that, you know, the people that put together the mayoralty and, and all of that and, all, and everything that went with it, the governance structures and all the rest of it, really onto something. And now we've started to see that be replicated across the country in slightly different ways yeah. and in slightly different forms. But the philosophy behind the the um you know the devolved mayoralties is pretty much the same as it was with with the london mayoralty and i've heard you and we've spoken before about 
you know the the pivotal uh, importance of you know the transport system and the strategy for it, but also the delivery of it, sitting very squarely under within the mayoral institution under the you know under the domain, as it were of the directly elected mayor and you you've always been a real advocate of that and so real benefits of that just oh. not just a sort of technocratic it's something that's going on over there it's done by kind of you know transport anoraks but but the real value of having the mayor responsible for and very deliberately in in charge of that just just say a little bit about what you saw as the, some of the benefits well I, I thought that was pivotal again andrew because you, you know the mayor is democratically elected and thus accountable to all of the residents of that region um, for what he or she delivers. And that, that really changed the game. You know, you were no longer holding brass plates to account. It was a democratically elected politician who had to promise stuff and write stuff in manifestos and then go and deliver it. And that is really, really important. And then the, in London, of course, the mayor is, is the chair yes. of, of Transport for London. In Greater Manchester, it's slightly different. The mayor is actually the portfolio holder for transport and on behalf of all 10 districts of Greater Manchester. But the, the, the outcome's the same. There's a single elected politician who sets out what, what it is that they will do from a transport perspective and, and be able to be held publicly accountable for it. And that really does change the dynamic because you can't hide behind corporate logos and anything like that. It, you know, it has to, and it's all played out publicly. There is no, there is an, the transparency around the, the the public transport agenda and the active travel agenda is 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 incredible. You know, people can see through all the materials that are put out there and and so on what what is in fact happening on the ground. Yeah. So I think that was a massive massive change that public accountability. Yeah. Um, one final thought on on kind of London, and then we'll move to get your reflections on where where greater manchester is now and we touched on this right at the beginning you get your thoughts on you know the funding sort of model um you know tfl brilliantly in some respects um very reliant on passenger you know fares and, and income from from passengers which you know incredibly good thing limits the requirement for the general taxpayer to you know to underpin uh services and all the rest of it but obviously that's great whilst passenger numbers are either stable and or and or growing and you know and so the part of the two-year period we've just been through is about a reconsideration of you know how do you fund big transport systems particularly in you know in big big urban areas i just wonder what your your reflections on that because again i think it's got implications for how we fund greater manchester's transport system or west yorkshire's or you know west midlands or you know whatever it whatever it might be so just give us a sense as to how you think the i guess the you know the pros and cons of the the tfl funding model as it was yeah well of course uh prior to covid transport for london was on the cusp of being able to cover all of its operating costs from its revenues from its own generated revenues um well, largely the fare box there were there were some other bits and pieces but it was largely the fare box yeah and as you say, Andrew, that was proven to not be resilient to a global pandemic where you suddenly were telling people to remain at home. Now, as, as, as your organisation has pointed out, uh, it, you know, in a number of your blogs, there are different funding models around, around the world. And, you know, New York and Paris and others were much, much less reliant on fair revenue 
land transport for London, about half, in fact, you know, very, very significantly different. But their models just rely on some form of taxation. And I think the, 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 the consideration now, you know, let, let's, let's hope we're getting to a point where we've got some a decent amount of stability back into our transport networks post-COVID so that we can have this breathing space to then examine what the, you know, what, what the funding model should be, how much should fares play, how much should local money play, because there is a, a point, you know, government would perfectly respectably point out that you can't devolve all these sort of things to regions without there being skin in the game locally. And I think everybody accepts that. Uh, but there, there does, I think, need to be some consideration of, of the role that the of central government as well. Uh, and as you say, Andrew, there are all sorts of different models around the world. But the, the, the irreducible point when you look beyond the detail of each is that public transport is, is funded out of general taxation to some extent. Mm. Um, I, I think it's incumbent, however, having said all of that, on all public transport authorities to, to, do, to improve their networks and to attract more people to use them. You know, you can't, this can't be a permanent you know, request of government uh, without there being effort locally and on the part of transport authorities to construct public transport and active travel networks that people actually want to use. Yeah, and no, I think that's a great point. And, and you think, you know, that, that principle of as good as we can make these systems, as efficient as we can make them, as attractive we can make them, as you I think, that, you know, an underlying principle is that there will have to be some form public you know public uh, funding going into them that we shouldn't have as an as a principle to expect them to be you know to be covering their their operating costs even either now or in the future just because of the way that they are run and and actually the the benefits are often diffuse diffuse benefits that they provide to different aspects of of yes. public policy i think that comes back to my earlier point that the benefit of the of public transport does not necessarily fall to the balance sheet of the transport operator, it falls elsewhere. It, it, it enables businesses to set up and employ people. It ena enables people to access public services. You know, and were it not there, they wouldn't be able to do these things. So that does, I think that does need to be borne in mind, but equally, I do think it's only right and proper that, um, you know, authorities look to themselves to do what they can to, uh, you know, produce better services, uh, promote them, uh, price them uh, sensibly, and um, you know, do that, do their bit as well. It has to be a collective effort, I think. Yeah. But you know, the government put a lot of money back into the public transport system to keep it going over the COVID period, and that cannot go on. But uh, I think there does need to be a period of adjustment um, to help people get back on their feet, as it were. Um, you know do stuff locally um to the extent that that's possible given the powers you have and all the rest of it and i'll come on and talk a few about yeah. a few of the things we're doing in great manchester in a minute and and then and then see how we go i think the worst possible outcome could be wholesale cuts to services because i do think that that would make public transport and active travel less attractive and and would either stop people traveling which means they're not being able to access everything you know that life has to offer um or it puts people back in their vehicles yes and and while 
it's understandable, as I said before, why people do use their vehicles at the moment in areas that don't have decent public transport. That doesn't help at all with our with our decarbonisation agenda and a health agenda with clean air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Absolutely right. I, I I completely agree with with that. Let's turn to um, Greater Manchester. Obviously, you've been in post uh, a few months, but I know obviously you had loads of engagement with uh, Greater Manchester, other big city regions while you were in uh, TFL as well. But just just paint a picture. How should we, you know, given you're there now and understanding the system better, how should we? think about it in relation to London maybe that's an unfair comparison to make but how 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 would you characterize it is is the GM system sort of 10 years behind where you know where London is now because of the way it operates or the way it's integrated or the way the ticket is how do we think of how should we think about GM compared to London is it a fair comparison um no not it, it's not a straight comparison I don't yeah. think right so so again you know the geographic area of Greater Manchester and, and Greater London are broadly the same. Populations are different. The density, the natural density of public transport in London I mean, is completely different to, yeah. to what it is in Greater Manchester. Hence, why I, I mentioned it's unsurprising at the moment where we have that 60-40 mode share rather than um, in London where, you know, car mode share is what, 35-40%? Yeah. Probably lower. Yeah. Um, but there are good reasons for that. And, it, and it's and again, this isn't an anti-car statement. It, it's, it's a function of the fact, I think, that the Greater Manchester Public Transport Network hasn't been integrated in the same way as, as London has. And it hasn't had that sort of sprinklings of magic dust that, uh, that, that London has had in terms of connecting up the payment system, for example, mm -hmm. and enabling people to pay and have a simple fare structure for all modes of transport. So you just tap and go and know and trust uh, somebody to calculate the best fare for you. So what, one of the first things I did, Andrew, was, was um, got my rucksack on and traveled around all 10 districts, used every form of transport I possibly could. And you know, there is a really solid base there. Re remember that uh, Metrolink, which is already operated by Transport for Greater Manchester, uh, that's one of the biggest tram networks in Europe. It's the yeah. biggest in the UK. It's one of the biggest in Europe. It's had several extensions to it. It's really good. Um, and and what, we, what we want to do now with, and, and, and you'll know that bus franchising is coming to yes. Greater Manchester as well. What we would like to do now is integrate the Metrolink network with the bus network. Uh, and the bus network will be franchised in three chunks, but in little over a year's time, the first tranche of franchising will be happening. Yeah, giving us an opportunity to look at the fares products uh, that we're able to offer and, uh, and and just to make it simpler for people to change modes. We won't, at, at that point, we won't um, have contactless seamlessly across all of the Greater Manchester area, but as more tranches of bus franchising, and it'll all be franchised by the end of 2024, uh, by the time we get there, we will have integrated ticketing, which you can use your a contactless payment card for which will calculate your daily cap your weekly cap all those sorts of things that people are just you know take for granted now uh, in london they yeah. will they will be in place so i wouldn't i i, I wouldn't characterize it as behind or, or or anything like that it's just different right. but but a lot of the core elements that's made london's public transport and, and active travel network successful i think have application in the greater manchester region as they do 
in, in other great cities and regions around the country. And it's largely about integrated fares, ticketing and information alongside frequent and reliable services. Um, and if you can get those things working in harmony. The great thing about franchising in Greater Manchester is for the first time, uh, the Transport Authority will be able to plan on a, on a, on a city region basis, the, the bus network alongside looking at Metrolink uh, and looking at how that all connects up. And then ultimately what we would love to be able to do is then connect the pipes up to the, to the suburban train network. Yes. In, in Greater Manchester as well, so that it really is genuinely integrated in the same way as London Overground is in London with the with the tube and with buses. And and I mean, you've talked about it there. I mean, you know, the mayor, uh, you know, Andy Burnham, you know, has talked a lot about you know the significance of buses as the workhorse of you know of the Greater Manchester system. And yet, from you know, for many observers outside. Buses are always the poor cousin relative to you know other things. Even in London, I think they don't get the quite the, the due regard that they 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 really should. But you know, the bus franchising and the progress of that is seems to me to be fundamental, really, to achieving you know most, if not all, of the things that you you've just been just been it, talking about. It is. It's pivotal to it. Um, and and bus franchising has been very successful in in London. Um, and it's going to be pivotal here. And I think what the, the other thing, the other thing to bear in mind about public transport is it's, it's a human thing. And, you know, we talk about digital apps and contactless and all that sort of stuff as well. But the, the, the public transport network provide, provides so many other functions. And what's striking about Greater Manchester, as, as was the case in, in London, is how proud people are to be working for the public transport network. So whether it's Keolis Amy who run the Metrolink on behalf of TFGM, whether it's TFGM people themselves, whether it's the bus drivers who currently, well, they will continue to work, of course, for, for the bus companies, but you, you know what I mean. They, yeah. they all feel incredible. And the, and the people at the bus interchange, there's some great transport in, interchanges in Greater Manchester, staffed by people who offer advice to people about how they can continue their journeys and so on. I think that's the other element of this, that this whole enterprise will do. It will galvanise everybody that works in the industry uh, and, and who are really passionate about delivering for the people of the region to really go for it. Because it, for the first time, it will be integrated. We're doing things on fares to make it more affordable for people. And particularly at this time, you know, whenever, you know, price inflation is, you know, up where it is. All of those things are so important. So harnessing the passion of the people working within the industry as well, as well as trying to attract new, uh, you know, existing users and potential users to the system is all going to be part of it as well. There's a big human side to this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other areas you've, uh, which given a lot of support over the last um, period uh, has been to expand the active travel, particularly cycling, but not, not exclusively that can you just say something about you know where the plans are currently and then yeah. you know how you see that rolling out over the next period so dame sarah story um was, has been appointed by the the mayor as the active travel commissioner and dame sarah and i work really closely together to ensure that what we call the b network so all that integration i was talking about before our, our sort of overarching description of that is the b network and and we're working really closely together to make sure the b network harnesses all of the benefits of public transport and active travel 
Uh, and we talked about funding and we, we talked a bit about revenue funding just a minute ago, but there is capital funding as well through city regional deals that have been landed. And over the, you know, the next few years, there's 1.2 billion, which is a, a, a mix of central government money and local money, mainly central government money, but also some local money to expand active travel facilities. Uh, and work had already it was already well underway in Greater Manchester on that under the previous Transport Commissioner Chris Baldwin, um, and Sarah's sort of picking that up and and building on all of that and looking at where that other money is going to be spent, and that will also go towards bus priority measures, and also uh, the bread and butter of uh, the maintenance and of the, um, of the of MetroLink as well. So. It really is an integrated, an integrated thing. And what better person than Dame Sarah Story, you know, Britain's, you know, greatest Paralympian, uh, still competing, uh, to to be able to bring all of her experience. In, and and she did a lot in the Sheffield City region, of course, before coming to Greater Manchester, to to help forge that. And it and it's great to be able to work side by side with Sarah on this stuff. Yeah, and and you mentioned earlier on and and about the, you know, the current sixty forty split. And the ambition to get it closer to, if not beyond, the, a 50-50 split, is that a, is that a, a sort of performance ambition or a, you know a, a goal? You know, you're only going to get there over a period of years, yeah. so it, it's a long-term target, I suppose. Yeah, you, you'd call call it. It's more than an aspiration. It's it's what all of this stuff is about. You know, there's there's no point doing any of it unless it delivers the, those sorts of outcomes. So there are loads of sort of intra-year targets that make sure that we're we're on on the right path, and TfL had those as well. You know, it had one-year targets, but it also looked beyond those one-year targets to sort of three, five, ten years as well, and then measured the tra trajectory to make sure that we were on track. And that applies also to the decarbonisation um, targets that that are in too. So it's real and. It would lead to real things and real decisions and people feeling things differently. You know, those buses, when we franchise them, it, it, Wigan and Bolton will be the first franchise um, in a little over a year's time. As part of that, there will be 50 new electric vehicles on those routes. There'll be a nice yellow livery. Um, and so you'll be able immediately to know that they're part of a more integrated network. Uh, and it will start feeling real. We'll have an integrated transport planning app uh, at the beginning of next year and in September of course the fares will be cut now even before the mayor is responsible for the fare box he's taken action uh, um, uh, not least on cost of living grounds to work with the bus operators to cut fares so that the from from next month it will be two pounds for a single bus journey one pound for a child single bus journey £5 adult all day, £2.50 uh, child all day. And, um, you know, we've worked with the bus operators to work out, because they're still running the, the fare box, to, to work out how they get compensated for that. But that is a first and very, you know, visible step. I mean, that's, that will save some people 50% of their bus fare. Um, hmm. And um, is a real signal of intent, I think. And, and what the mayor's saying and what I'm saying to the people of Greater Manchester is, well, please come and use us now. Yeah. Um, you know, we're making the, the fair, fairs more, more affordable. We haven't got 
all of the powers over the bus network yet that we want, but they're coming, which will enable us to, to think about how we plan things more effectively. So please, please come and do it, because if we want those fares to be low on a sustainable basis, we need more people to, um, to come and use public transport. And so in that in that example with the fares, uh, Vernon, is the mayor and, uh, you know, and through the mayor, the TFGM, are you absorbing any any shortfall in the short run? Is that the way the funding model works? Yeah. Or is there third party funding coming in? So one of the things that government has done is uh, work with city regions to produce what they call bus service improvement plans. Yes. So-called BSIPs. And that comes with a, an amount of money. And, and Greater Manchester was allocated an amount of money as part of the BSIP settlement, which is being used as it is in places like West Yorkshire um, and, uh, the, and Liverpool City region to, to use uh, th that money to reduce fares. Because there's a real, there's a here and now cost of living crisis that people are having to uh, manage. And this is one of the most direct routes in which you can actually you know, alleviate at least some of that pressure by making their journeys um, uh, cheaper. So the BSIP money is being used for that. And it's also being used in Greater Manchester to um, stabilise the bus network until such time as we're able to look at it in the round once franchising has worked all its way through. Because emergency funding for the buses for COVID was going to run out in October. Yes. Uh, and that was obviously causing some difficulty around the country and government extended that uh, for, for three months. And then I think another three months for those regions that really need continued help. Um, so so all, all of that is, is going towards, if you like, making sure that the respective bus networks are stabilised and we can build, build from that point. So, yes, and, and franchising is, is being largely funded from from local sources um so th there's local money being raised to, to finance that um as as well so it's a real mix and it's a real partnership and it's a partnership between the operators central government and city regions and that seems to be well self-evidently that's got to be a model that yeah that continues yeah and um does does gm have the powers that it needs to, to you know to do what what you've been laying out Vernon in terms of you know in the totality and or do, or do you think there are still you know sizable chunks or, or you know areas where you know further powers or you know further responsibilities will need to be to be devolved what's your kind of thought on that I think on the on buses um, you know obviously the, the mayor and, le and district leaders have taken the decision to to use the franchising powers that are already yes. available now there are other um, city regions around the country contemplating this too. Yeah. So the power's there for that. Um, already run Metrolink. I think the area where the powers need further exploration is in the area of rail. Now, in the short run, I think quite a lot could be delivered on rail simply by connecting up payment systems. And it's not about who runs the service or who runs the franchise. Uh, I think that's more about just making it simpler for customers so that they can tap and go and be indifferent as to which mode they're using. And we would like to work with Great British Railways who have some money to extend pay-as-you-go ticketing outside of London to see whether we can integrate. You know, once we finish connecting up the pipes between trams and buses, we would like to you know, broaden that into rail.
I think there, but there, there are then other questions. The, the rail agenda in the Northwest is absolutely enormous. Uh, and the Northern powerhouse rail commitments that were, that were promised, you know, uh, you know, several years ago have not come to pass. Um, and, you know, as a core part of leveling up, we need better rail services. So, you know, the, the um, ownership of stations is a, is a big issue um, for, for the mayor. And I think as, a, as an interim step along the way, we can address those stations as part of the B network and again, yeah. integrate. I also think we need money to unlock some of the bottlenecks that there are in the Greater Manchester Rail Network. So um, there's something called the Castlefield Corridor and there are a number of other examples of where routes from all around the country can go from sort of three, three tracks, if you like, into one and create a bottleneck at Manchester Piccadilly and other central Manchester stations. And that is a real, uh, that really in, inhibits running more service or, or, or more reliable service. So I think in terms of powers, it's the rail area that we would like to uh, look at. And we're already speaking as part of the, the government have invited a couple of regions to say what more they would like to see in terms of local devolution. Yes, yes. And we're, and we're, and we're, in, a, we're in a conversation now with them about what that might look like in terms of rail. In the meantime, we would really want to work with GBR, the GBR transition team on, on what that all looks like for for the northwest as they come into come into being over the next 18 months or so and whilst you've been at, at gm which is obviously not for that long and it's, we've gone through quite a strange period not least because uh, one prime minister has stepped down and we are about to get uh, a new prime minister and therefore you know government in some degree goes into some kind of sort of stasis through this period what's what's your experience of engaging with you know with government not just with DFT because actually it's a bigger broader agenda it's a you know it's an all whole of government approach and a perspective yeah. what's your you know what, what's the impression of the way that government is engaging with GM and obviously you had lots of experience of engaging with government when you're in your TFL days but just just your experience thus far I think it's constructive um and it, it, you know there are you know there are as always I mean transport is politics mm. it always has been and it always will be and there are always tensions in the system about funding about objectives and all the rest of it but actually the 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 the, the discussions are, are, are pretty constructive uh, both from a from a, a transport perspective and from a devo perspective Michael goes former former department has engaged us very heavily and it's not just transport devolution of course you know, there's there's other other bits of it, housing and education and so on. That, that's also under discussion as part of these Devo deals. So it's it's been constructive, and we we would like it naturally. We would like it to continue to be, and I and I and I think it will be. And broadening that out, I mean, since what's your, you know, what where do you think, or where would you like to see? You know, as you talked about earlier on, you know, we talk about quite a lot. You know the leveling up agenda that's what the you know the previous prime minister called it the, the next prime minister might call it something different but doesn't matter what the label is at the heart of what we're trying to achieve is to make places like greater manchester more prosperous than they they currently are and in order to do that they need a mix of investments and a mix of devolution just your you know your reflections now coming out of you know from a greater manchester perspective as where that agenda is and what would you what would you be looking for for you know, in the in the near future, from a to government to show that it's serious. Yeah, 
Well, Greater Manchester, of course, has also had uh, in certain areas more devolution than, than, than other parts of the country, particularly when you look at the, the health agenda. Yes. Um, and, and that is the result. That's the result of the civic leadership of Greater Manchester, the political leadership of Greater Manchester and all the districts coming together and working together to demonstrate that they know what they're doing and they can use these devolution powers to deliver real outcomes on the ground locally. And I think there's real credibility in the Greater Manchester system um, that demonstrates that uh, what's already been devolved has been uh, you know, managed really, really well. So that, that's a great base on, on, which to, on, on which to work. So um, yeah, we, we'd like to go further on that. As, as I mentioned, we're in, in Devo deal discussions uh, at the moment uh, uh, with government. There's a transport element to that, there's an education element to that, there's a housing element to that. Uh, and I think it all has to be founded on that credibility of, of the local leadership, which I think is self-evidently there, uh, which will be able to take that, take that further. And there'll be individual issues, there always are, um, along the way that need, that need hammering out. But overall and directionally, um, you know, I think all of the credentials are, are there for Greater Manchester to receive further powers and to build on all of the fantastic work that's gone, been going on for decades in Greater Manchester um, in this area. I think that's a, a great point on which to uh, to finish, Vernon. Thank you very much for being part of City Talks. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Use with permission and all rights are reserved.